I really, truly did love my Ultraman experience because of my involvement with my crew. It really was a team effort. And they, you know, they say for every triathlete, either, you know, age group or professional, that it, it takes a village. Yeah. But at Ultraman, it literally does. And, and the degree of intimacy with your crew uh, and how involved they are in the process just made it. A re- I could not have done it without them. That's Didi Griesbauer, Ultraman Florida champion, world record holder, and also three-time Ironman champion. And this is the Oxygenatic Triathlon Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Oxygen Addict Triathlon Podcast. We're brought to you every week by our sponsors, PrecisionHydration.com. Electrolytes and different strengths that match how you sweat. You can get 15% off your first order with the code OxygenAddict15. And we're also brought to you by Thriver.co, the simple finger prick blood test you can do at home to track hormone, vitamin and mineral levels in your body. 10% off all subscriptions with the code OxygenAddict10. Right, everyone, hope you're well. This week, I've got a cracking interview with you with Dee Dee Griesbauer. She won Ultraman Florida in February of 2020 this year. She broke the women's Ultraman world best by over an hour. She finished second overall. Uh, she's a great athlete. A lot of long-time sort of British listeners will know Dee Dee. She won Ironman UK back in 2006 when it was back down at Sherbourne Castle, and she was notable there for, for leading out the pro field. Um, she's a fantastic swimmer. She swam collegiately. Uh, she finished top 10 in Kona three times. She won numerous 70.3s. And now you'll probably know her as well as some of her fantastic um, athletic performances. Fans of time trialing will know her from uh, winning the world 12-hour time trial championships. And she talks about that a little bit as well. She's also one of the voices of the Ironman.com, Ironman Live, Facebook Watch commentary team. So you'll have been hearing her. So she's fantastically knowledgeable about the sport with all the athletes racing at the moment. She still races herself to a very highest level. Um, and she was great. She was a really fun interview. So I look forward to bringing that to you later on in the show. Right, first up, thanks to show sponsors, Precision Hydration. You uh, need to get over to their website and take their online sweat test to find out if you are a particularly heavy or particularly salty sweater. It's the summertime, people. Some of you may be venturing abroad and racing and training in the heat. Some of you may be staying in the UK. And who knows, the forecast for the coming week shows we might get some sun and heat ourselves at the end of the week. So we need to stay hydrated. And that's more complicated than just drinking water. You've got to have the appropriate amount of sodium in there to replace the amount of sodium that you personally lose in your sweat. So you can take their online sweat test on the website that'll give you a lead as to whether, you know, what kind of salty sweater you are. And if you're like me, if the results of that online test come back and say you are incredibly salty as a sweater, you can actually have an in-person sweat test done and it'll tell you exactly how much sodium you lose per liter of sweat. So for me, trying to take something like Gatorade just doesn't just doesn't cut it. There's 250 mils of sodium in a bottle of Gatorade. I lose about 15, 1600 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat. So even drinking a traditional electrolyte drink, I still lose tons more salt than I actually um, am putting back in. So for me, it's been a key part of not hideously cramping up in any kind of workout I do in the heat. And also you know, racing in the heat for me was also a real challenge. I'd end up feeling really sick and unwell if I didn't take care of my electrolytes. So yeah, I think it's a fantastic product. I wholeheartedly recommend it and endorse it myself. The team all take it. And I really do believe it's like the best electrolyte supplementation out there. So get over there, listeners to the show. You can get yourself a nice discount using the code 15%, sorry, using the code OxygenAddict15 and get 15% off your first order at precisionhydration.com. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my week. I've just had fantastic four or five days away down in Anglesey, um, took the bikes, rode around Anglesey. If you've not been out that way, I can't recommend getting out there highly enough. The roads are quiet, the tarmac is good quality, and how sad am I that that becomes like a, an important thing in terms of a cycling holiday. But we all know, don't we, as cyclists, having a nice smooth road to ride on makes all the difference. So we zoomed around Anglesey for a few days. Um, 
We had, I think, sunshine and showers is the best way to describe it. Today we had our long ride, it was beautiful weather, but we had, you've just got to be prepared to take a raincoat when you get out there. We had a great run where we went out in the teeming rain and it dried up and came out sunny. So we ran along the beach. We had a bit of a surf one day on some windblown chop. We had a bit of a swim in the ocean. Absolutely love that place. So I can't recommend um, visiting Anglesey, Ross Niger, that area highly enough. We thought it was absolutely brilliant. I'd, I'd love to own a place out there. I'd love some kind of little triathlon training retreat out that way. So who knows, man? I've got to say it out loud to so try and make the dream become real, don't I? Um, so yeah, we had a great old time. And I'm saying this really because people are not getting the chance to do events organized by other people at the moment. So this was part of our self-organized events. Let's get out to Anglesey. Let's, we had a specific ride we wanted to do where we rode all the way along the southwest coast of Anglesey, all the way out to the lighthouse at South Stack. If you know the area, you'll know how amazing that is. Fantastic climb up to the lighthouse. Reminded me a little bit of the climb at the very north edge of Mirador on Lanzarote. Obviously not quite as warm as that, but that similar sort of cliff path edge road kind of feel. I think we'd maybe passed three or four cars all day the whole time we were out in a four hour ride. So it was a it was a brilliant chance to get out there and ride the roads. So I'm encouraging all of you to to get together with a mate, go for a socially distanced adventure while there's nothing happening that you can actually get to in terms of organized adventures at the moment. Something that we've got organized for our Team Oxygenetic coach members this week because there's not much of anything by way of real events going on at the moment. We we needed a focus for our training plans, so we've organized our own virtual event for this coming weekend, and we wanted to do something a little bit different. We wanted it based originally around the idea of a, of a half Ironman, but we, we didn't just want it to be a virtual, just like a, you know, ride indoors on Zwift, go and run outdoors and record it on the GPS. So rather than come up with a 70.3, we've come up with an event that we've called Max 6, the idea of this is, it's pretty brutal actually, and I can't take any credit for it. It was mainly my pal Andy's idea. We're going to try and go as far as we can in six hours as a triathlon event. So you're going to swim, you're going to bike, you're going to run, you're going to swim for an hour in open water and see how far you can get, or in fact in the pool now, if some pools are open. You're going to ride your bike for three hours and see how far you can get in three hours. And then you're going to run for two hours and see how far you can get in two hours. So it's somewhere around the distances of a 70.3 race. For some people, it's going to be further. For some people, it's going to be not as far. But the idea is it's a little bit of competition to make you say, right, our athletes have known this event's been coming all month. And it's more about the training than it is about doing the actual event. It's more about having something on the calendar to say, I've got to do this epic thing then. So I'll do these things now and try and build up and make sure you get your long ride in, make sure you get your long runs in. Something on the calendar to mean that you'll show up day in and day out. And it's the showing up day in and day out that makes the difference rather than actually the event itself. So loads of the members of our team are taking part in this. They're all fired up for it. But most importantly, it's been the carrot that's been dangled in front of them for the last three or four weeks that's meant they've got out and get those long rides done on a weekend when it might have been rainy or they've got out and got the long run done even though they had to get up early to get it done it's been a bit of inspiration for people maybe a bit of fear for some people as well and sometimes we need that little bit of fear to get ourselves moving so that we've got something to go for so we've got about 100 people lined up to take part in this event i'm really looking forward to watching how people challenge themselves We've left it pretty flexible and said you can do the event anytime from Friday through to the end of Monday, so a four-day weekend. Try and get in as much as you can. Uh, some people are going to try and do it back-to-back, -back, so a full six hours in one go like a triathlon. Some people are going to spread it out over four days, but... I really hope that you, the listeners who are not a member of the team, I hope you've got something on the horizon that's inspiring you to go and get your training done. And if you haven't, I encourage you, just book your own event. Put something on the calendar three or four weeks in the future that means you're going to show up for yourself for the next three or four weeks to get the training done, to get you inspired to do that thing in three or four weeks' time. Um, yeah, so I hope you guys are getting something done like that. And I'm mentioning it now. I'm not going to be able to tell you about it for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be uh, away and having a bit of a break for the next two weeks. So the show will be going out as usual. I've got a couple of pre-recorded shows that are going to go out with age group specials. 
which I hope you're really going to enjoy. They're going to be pre-recorded, so they won't be the traditional format of show. So I hope you enjoy those uh, while I am away. Um, little shout out before we go into the interview of the week, a bit of a coach's couch section really, but it's, it's not really training advice. This is more of a shout out to one of our team members who's had a cracking result. This is a shout out to team oxygen addict coach member, Tom Lissett. Tom has been, been grinding away at his training for six months now, still since he joined us. And he posted this in the Facebook group this week. I've been out and done my 10K run time trial today. I had a goal time in mind. I wanted to get myself a 10% club running buff. Now, some of you all know if you've been listening for a while, within Team OA, we've got the 10% club. So if you can improve your performance by 10% in a running event, in a swimming event, or a biking FTP type test, we give you a little present. You get a, a running buff, one of those neck buff cover things for doing 10% off your run time. Um, we give you a swim hat for 10% off your 400 meter time in the swim. And we give you some bike stickers for 10% added onto your FTP. Now, just, you know, they're not massive things, but it's a little something to kind of, you know, like a well done sticker that you used to get in primary school. So Tom's really been shooting for his 10% club running buff. And he said, I really thought it was still a few months off. I started Team OA six months ago with 47.20, so my 10% target was 42.36. I set off hard and hung on for a 41.54. So I've got to say, it is a massive improvement to knock 10% off your runtime in in a six-month period. With a lot of the members, we say we'll give them the running buff if they manage to improve their run performance in an event by 10% because... You know, for people who are well trained on the run, it is such a massive ask to knock any kind of any kind of chunk off your runtime at all. So, Tom, you've done absolutely brilliantly to knock ten percent or more than off your ten k runtime. Really impressed by that, mate. You've done a cracking job. So, you get a shout out on the podcast. Um, and if you want to have a chat with me about whether you'd be a good fit for coaching, you can set up a phone call or Skype call. There's a link in the show notes. Just click on that, fill out the details. Um, I'm going to be away for the next couple of weeks, but fill it out. Me or Andy or one of the team can get back to you and you can have a chat to find out more about how whether the way we coach is going to suit you and whether you'd be a good fit for the team. All right. Other couple of things you can keep on doing. We've got an official Zwift ride on Tuesdays at 7.15 p.m. UK time, the Oxygenetic Triathlon Podcast Power Hour. This is something that I've credited a lot of the improvements in our athletes We've had, you know, something like 31, I think, athletes improve their FTP in the FTP test we did last week. And it's all down to getting together, doing a structured training ride once a week, really forcing yourself to do that hard work when you don't want to do it. Workouts, I'm saying this, workouts guaranteed to raise your FTP and give you a faster, more powerful bike leg this coming season. So come join us. It's free. Uh, you don't need a special link. We're listed within Zwift. So just go onto the official Zwift page. You need to have joined the event five minutes before start time. So get yourself on Zwift about seven o'clock and start warming up. Although our event does include a warm up as well. Um, click on the link on the right hand side that'll take you into the event. And then we'll take you through a warm up and some structured intervals that will hopefully having people around you, it will make it just a little bit easier to grind out those intervals. Um, yeah, good stuff. All right. So over to this week's interview of the week with Didi Griesbauer. Didi Griesbauer, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to get a chance to talk to you. Ultraman Florida champion, world record holder. Um, previous winner of Ironman UK all the way back in 2006. So um, as I was saying, as we chatted before we went live on air, I know you've worked a bit with my good friend Matt Botterill and when he offered me the chance to get you on and have an interview, I was super excited. So thank you for joining us. I know it's the crack of dawn where you are right now. So it's impressive that you're up at this time in the morning. Oh, we're usually up this time anyway. We have um, two Labrador retrievers that like to get up and get going with their day. So we, we don't often sleep in. Honestly, I'm, I'm harder to catch at 8 p.m. than I am at 6 a.m. So really? it's, it's all those, good. It? <laughs> <laughs> so I want to start. Let's, let's kick off by talking about Ultraman Florida because, I mean, really, it was possibly one of the, one of the last events that happened this year before kind of the world shut down with coronavirus it was sort of mid sort of 15th of february was it sometime around then 
Yeah, it was right, um, right around, I know it included Valentine's Day. So right around the 14th, I think it was the 13, 14, 15th or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So mid February. Yeah. Okay. So we've had in the past a couple of years ago now, we had Rob Gray on who'd won Ultraman Hawaii. Um, but for listeners who didn't hear that or who don't know what Ultraman is and can't possibly conceive that there's something even more insane than Iron Man out there, talk us through the multi-day fund that is an Ultraman event. <laughs> Yeah, Ultraman is, it's across three days. So in, in some ways, I've, I found it to be somewhat easier um, because it is three days. You get to go home and sleep and rest in between each segment. But uh, it's three days. Day one is a 10-kilometer swim and a 91-mile uh, bike. Sorry, I don't do Ks. I do miles. Okay. <laughs> day two is a 171-mile bike. And day three is a double marathon. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yes. So it's it, originally I was under the impression that it was a double Ironman. It's actually longer than that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do the math properly, but yeah, it's it's slightly longer. It's a longer swim, longer bike and exactly a double Ironman run. It's almost like a triple on the swim and the bike, isn't it? Uh yeah, it's it is quite a quite a bit longer. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So what first up like what what led you to the door of the Ultraman events? How did you end up there? Honestly, I have friends who have done it. Um I am very good friends with a now retired pro named Hilary Biscay. Yeah. And Hilary uh is a very good friend of mine. I actually did a training camp back when I lived in Boston. We lived on the East Coast here in the U.S. for a number of years, which their, their winters weren't very conducive to uh, professional triathlon. So I yeah. would typically try to escape uh, for several weeks every winter and go to someplace warmer. And one year um, I went to Tucson, Arizona and did a training camp with uh, Hillary and her husband, Mikey. And Hillary was just kind of winding up her career by that point and had done uh, Ultraman Hawaii twice, I believe. And I went to a try night at a local bike shop. She was speaking. Uh, so I went with them. I just sat in the back while she did a, a bit of a Q&A. And, and I, like, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, this sounds amazing. I have to do this. And this was back, I think, in 2015. Okay. Um, and I just sort of put it on my bucket list and I thought, Oh, someday. And then it never really seemed to fit. I always had another priority uh, that I wanted to achieve with my season. And, and now I'm, I'm 49, I'll be 50 in just a couple of months. And I thought it's now or never. <laughs> I've got to get this. I've got to get this thing done. If, it, if I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a shot at doing it while my knees and everything still work. So uh, yeah, I finally just uh, bit the bullet, so to speak, and, and got my name on the start list. That was last um, I guess just about a year ago, midsummer last year, I, I put my name on the start list for Ultraman Florida. Wow. And how do you, how do you go about beginning to think about building a training plan for something so long and arduous and multi-day as that? And you work with, you work with Julie Dibbons, don't you? Yeah, I'm very fortunate. I, I put, and I'm an athlete that does this anyway. I, I put a lot of faith in my coaches. I'm a, I'm a plan follower. So they put it on the plan. I do it. I trust um, I trust their knowledge and their expertise. And, and with Julie, um, I knew she had the expertise. She also coaches uh, Jordan Bryden, who's a Canadian pro. He won Ultraman Canada last year and also won Ultraman Hawaii last year. Um, Julie also works very closely with Matt Bottrell, who you mentioned, uh, and yeah. who coaches Rob Gray or did at the first period right, of time. Yeah. I don't know if they still work together, but I think she talked a little bit with him and, and certainly had the experience coaching Jordan. Uh, and then Jordan, as one of my squad mates, um, I leaned on him quite heavily and, and got a lot of advice from him. He was also on my squad. So I was surrounded uh, by a lot of, of good advice. So I really just followed the plan. Um, I, my, my background is in swimming. I swam collegiately. Um, and I was confident that I could do a 10K swim. So my swim training wasn't dreadfully different. Uh, the biggest concern for me about the swim, uh, was the fact that it was winter here when I was, you know, training for Ultraman. So I didn't have access to open water right. and obviously swimming in a pool here in a yards pool, in particular 25 <laughs> yards, you're flip turning every 
25 yeah. yards. So even across the 10K swim, it's very, very different than 10K open water. So that was my only bit of apprehension about the swim. Um, the bike, we did a lot of back-to-back long rides. So I do a, a long ride uh, with a bit of intensity, some intervals on a Friday and follow that up by a much longer sort of six to seven hour ride on the Saturday that was more aerobic in nature. And then the run, the run was a big concern because I, I have had some run injuries in the past and I was concerned about sort of jacking run mileage and how I'd never run more than a marathon. Um, that was the big question mark. I knew I could do the swim and I knew I could do the bike. I did the, um, 12 hour time trial world championship back in 2016 and rode 200 and I'll have to look it up. 58 miles. <laughs> I've, I've up, done my, I've done my preparation. <laughs> Dee Dee. I always forget, I always forget the number, but I re- had ridden 258 miles in one day. So I knew I was pretty confident that I could do it on the bike, but the, the run, I had never run a step further than a marathon. And so I was quite nervous about it. And that was also the discipline where I was never going to cover the distance. I was never going to go out and do a training run of 52 miles. Um, But Julie got super creative. We did a lot of running followed immediately by hiking. So I would go out and do a two to two and a half hour run and meet my husband at a trailhead somewhere in Boulder. And we'd go hike for two hours. And then maybe I'd do a 30 minute jog home from the trailhead. And so it was just sort of time under load. I did a lot of three and four hour hikes Um, and just tried to build a lot of durability. I did a lot of incline walking on a treadmill, a lot of stair climber, um, and, and really just crossed my fingers and hoped it was enough. (laughs) Do you know, I think that, I think the, um, the valid nature of doing long hikes, even for like for age group is training for Ironman, especially if they're at the, like the slower end, but even if they're not, I think. I remember one of my old university professors saying, look, we're, we're talking about the physiological challenge of running a marathon here. Most of you have never stood up for three hours without sitting down to have a rest. And, and I remember looking at my best pal and saying to him, that's an amazing point. We've never even been on our feet. Even if you go hiking in the, the mountains, you'll sit down and have a break. So the first challenge is just being on your feet for that period of time without even without moving, let alone without walking. So, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say you do a lot of hiking as part of the preparation. Well, I did some I did some research online, and of course, you can find anything online these days. But yeah. I had written I had read a, um, a blog by an ultra runner, um, and she said that a big part of her training she has stand only days, basically where the from the right. time she gets up until the time she goes to bed, she doesn't let herself sit down. So if she's going to do work at the computer, she'll do it standing. Yeah. Um, she'll eat her meals standing. She doesn't allow herself to sit down you know, for a majority of that day. And, um, it, it's, it's, it, it was an interesting concept. And for me, I, it put, it did put a lot of strength in my legs. I think one thing I might do differently or, or do to enhance training, should I ever do an Ultraman again would be, um, to do it under slight load. So maybe wear a weight vest, um, mm. You know, again, we took our dogs with us when we hiked and, and I always made my husband carry the pack with the water for the dogs. So yeah. <laughs> maybe next maybe next time I carry the pack. But again, just uh, having that extra weight puts just extra durability in all of the soft, soft tissue, the connective tissue and stuff in your legs. So I found it to be um, for me, it was enough. I mean, not that's not to say that the 52 miles was easy, but it wasn't as awful as I had envisioned it to be. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that goes a long way for a lot of age groupers in that, you know, they come to an Ironman marathon and they say, well, I just I just don't want to walk. I don't want to embarrass myself. And and to get across to them this idea that like just getting to the finish line, walking is hard after riding for 112 miles. You're in pain. It's not like you're having a casual stroll. Exactly. And and walking is still forward. Like walking is yeah. okay. I You know, yeah. I say that. And, you know, with the athletes I coach, I try to say, look, it's okay to walk, particularly if you're using the walk either to get your core body temperature down, doing it to get nutrition on board. Totally. You know, my best advice with adding walking is to be disciplined about it. So either count your steps or at an Ironman in particular, um, that you start jogging again by the end of the aid station so that you allow yourself to walk. But as soon as your foot crosses that barrier of the last volunteer at the aid station, you're moving again. So yeah. Walking, I'm 100% fine with walking. Um, and to that point, at the end of Ultraman, we did get into a bit of a walk strategy because uh, my run had fallen apart so much that Jordan was the one that suggested. He said, okay, we're going to run a mile and then we're going to walk for, I think it was 30 seconds. And I can't tell you the relief that getting to walk 
yep. brought. I was so relieved to just be able to walk, but then you have to start running again. So it did become a bit of a double-edged sword. But as long <laughs> as you're disciplined with the walk interval so that, that you don't find yourself walking more than running, I think it's a brilliant strategy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good idea, I think, to to set that. It, it, all of a sudden, you've not got a marathon or, in your case, a double marathon to do. You've just got to run for a mile and you get a break and somehow your mind can kind of eat the elephant in small chunks, as it were. Yeah, there were a couple of competitors um, on the day at Ultraman that actually utilized that strategy from the start. Yeah, uh, they They started immediately with a run walk. And so they ran for whatever their strategy was, and then they'd walk for a bit. Yeah. Uh, and they had actually done that in training as well. I didn't do it. I did it once, I think, in training, and I found myself somewhat annoyed by it. Um, so we didn't actually do it as much in training. But towards the end of Ultraman, it did become – it changes up the mindset a little bit as well yeah. um, and, and makes you feel like, okay, I'm in a different section of the race because, you know, across that distance, it can feel kind of endless. So when we went to that strategy – um, I believe it was with about 10 miles to go. Um, it, it definitely sort of almost freshened things up mentally, which sounds strange. <laughs> no, I, I totally get it. And I'm the same with the guys that I coach. I get them to do that one minute walk break every 10 minutes right from the start. And then instead of staring at the barrel of a, a marathon, they've got, you know, 18 or 20 runs of 10 minutes to get through. And it just makes it a little bit a little bit less daunting and we need we need it to be less daunting <laughs> yeah that's 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 the big part of it the the mental fear of it uh i think is is a big hurdle for a lot of folks it certainly was for me going into day three of ultraman yeah well listen let's talk about the event itself then so you kicked off day one was your 10k swim um what were the conditions like in florida in february <laughs> uh it's it's not it's not stifling but it is humid okay uh so it was i don't want to say chilly in the morning. I had a, I had a sweatshirt on. I was, you know, it, it wasn't like hot at 5am when we would report to the, the start each day. Um, it would get up into the probably mid to high seventies, maybe even low 80 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, each day. Uh, it can be windy in that bit of Florida. So the, the days on the bike, uh, wind, was not a huge factor, but certainly I was prepared for it to be. Uh, the, the morning of day one, the swim was actually dead calm. It was like glass. And, and I remember Jordan saying, oh, you know, you, 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 got, you got lucky or something like that. And he started getting nervous that I was going to swim faster than his, um, than his Ultraman times. Um, <laughs> we, had a, we had a little side wager going on. So he, he got a little nervous when he saw the water conditions. And and I'll admit, we started out, they, they were expecting a bit of rain that morning. And we started out and it was, it was like swimming in a pool. It was so calm. You could see forever. And then all of a sudden I picked my head up and I thought, oh, I think it's, I, I, we were about 2K in. I was like, I, th I think it started to rain. And I asked, Julie was my kayak es ex escort. Um, each athlete has a, a kayaker that escorts them. Um, and I was like, is it raining? She's like, yep. And she got actually quite cold. Um, because kayaking at that pace, it's, it's not very rigorous exercise. So yeah, she, sure. she actually found herself got quite cold. Um, and as it rained, probably another K later, the wind started to pick up. So this massive weather front was literally blowing through the area and it got so choppy. I felt like I was in the worst ocean swim. It was, I couldn't really was as bad as that. Oh, and this is, this is just a lake. Like this isn't, I mean, it's a large lake, but it's not, it's not a, 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 it's not an ocean, but it felt worse than an ocean. It was chopped. There was white caps. Julie was maybe five feet from me in the kayak and I could not see her because wow. we were up and down, yeah. up and down. One kayaker, actually one athlete had to withdraw from the race because not because she couldn't handle the swim, but her kayaker tipped and they couldn't get the kayak back upright, so she didn't have an escort. Oh, so the conditions were really, really awful. And, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is dreadful. And we had that for probably the, the second half of the swim. I thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it. But then I had this thought, like, Didi, if you're struggling in these conditions, like, no one's getting out of the yeah. water. Like, <laughs> if you can't get out of this water, nobody can. And, and so I kind of hung in there with it. 
And in my last recollection, when I got out of the water, my crew was there. I ran out of the water and they were, it was like, it was, it was like military, like precision, like somebody stripped off my, my wetsuit and somebody else was pulling up my race kit. Somebody else was shoving food in my face. Jordan was putting my socks on and I just looked over. I, I just have this recollection of looking over at Julie, who was like shivering <laughs> <laughs> and if everyone swarmed around me and poor Julie's teeth are chattering and it did take her quite a while to warm up. Uh, it took her a few hours actually to warm up after that. But, uh, yeah, so the swim ended up being deceiving. It started out so calm and got so crazy. But then by the time we got on the bike, the storm had passed through, um, and we were on our way. My husband tells a funny story that during the swim, um, they're standing on shore and things got bad. Like the finish arch blew over and, and the speakers, they had to cover them cause they were getting wet and, and they made an announcement over the speakers, like everyone should find shelter and so the crew runs to the car. My husband's like, I'm sitting in a dry car to find shelter. And my wife is in the lake swimming. Yeah. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> like, this is not right. <laughs> but then we took off on the bike and there was a bit of humidity, but it stayed dry the rest of the day. Um, yeah. And then day two um, was the weather was fine, sunny, humidity. Day three, same thing, a little bit of humidity. But uh, we were very lucky with the weather. Okay. Now you mentioned very humbly earlier on, I might, I might add that you, you won the 2016 12 hour world time trial championships. You didn't mention that you won it outright. You beat everybody there, male and female, which is, which is pretty damn impressive. So you must be comfortable in your aero position that Matt must've worked his magic on your aero position to be comfortable there. Yeah. I, um, the 12 hour time trial world championship was a bit of a distraction to be honest 2016 was a tough year for me in terms of injury I had a series of unrelated seemingly unrelated injuries throughout the year I I had an injury early on and and then I you know I, I sat down from running for a bit and it got better and I'd start running again and within four to six weeks I got another injury like in a completely different place different side of the body it wasn't a recurrence of the same injury and I just was stuck in this cycle and by the end of the summer, I was really quite frustrated at doing nothing but training and, and still not being able to, to really get healthy. And um, Julie actually found this this event. It's, um, it's the 6-12, 24-hour time trial world championship. And you pick your division. And she's like, I just think it'd be good for you to have something to do. She's like, you can pick any division you want. Um, pick the one that excites you. And so I sat down and looked at it and I thought, well, six hours, that doesn't seem very epic. I kind of do that once or twice a week in training anyway. Um, and 24 hours seemed a bit daunting because I'm a girl who likes her sleep. Um, <laughs> so I just, I settled in the middle and, and, and decided on 12 hours. And the event takes place in Borrego Springs, which is in the California desert. Um, and it's a teeny tiny little postage stamp of a town. There's not much going on in Borrego Springs, but, uh, there is an 18-mile rectangular loop, and so they set the athletes off, and you basically ride as many times around this 18-mile loop as you as you can in in the designated time that you have. Um, and they start the 24-hour folks at 6 p.m. the night before, and then we started at 6 a.m., and then the six-hour people start at 12 noon, and everyone finishes at 6 p.m. on the day. And so after about 4.30 in the afternoon, they funnel everyone off the 18-mile loop onto a smaller six-mile 10K loop um, because only completed loops count. So Right, okay. I, right, so if you get my last loop, I came through and I knew I wasn't going to make another 10K. And, and even though the clock was still running, I only had eight minutes on the clock. So they just pulled me off and said, you're done. Um, right. But it was a really kind of a cool event. Um not a lot of hype to it, and, and it's self-supported. So my husband was my pit crew and literally stood in a parking lot all day, handing me bottles as I, as I came through. I stopped, I, I believe, twice. Um, but yeah, I sat pretty much in my aero bars for 12 hours and was happy as a clam. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I read a quote that you wrote somewhere, it might have been on Slow Twitch, where you said like partway through you realized, oh God, I might be good at this. This means I have to do, have you been tempted to do it again? Um, I have been tempted to do it again because I went into it again with absolutely no concept 
of, of, of what it would be. Um, I sort of had that ignorance is bliss um, emotion about it. And now that I have a bit of knowledge, certainly there would be the apprehension going in that I couldn't match what I had done. But there's also the experience that maybe I could, uh, things I could do differently, things I could do better, um, have an idea now of what power I can sort of push across that distance. And so it's not so much of a question mark. Uh, and there's ways I could sort of nip and tuck and perhaps go a little further. But the thing that prevents me, honestly, from doing that is the completed loops feature of it, because I would have to get, you know, quite a bit faster um, to get in a whole nother loop. And so that's the thing that I sort of dwell on um, as well. But it was a super fun event. Come and do one in the UK. They they count you all the way to the 12 hours in the UK. So you could, you could add, you could add the extra bit on. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a flat course in the UK? Is it flat? It usually is. Yeah. They, they change courses every year, but they usually find, you know, there's, there's a whole rack of different courses around the UK that they use for this stuff. But um, wow. yeah, hit Matt up. He'll know about this. He, he hands oh. out in, in church halls all summer long doing crazy stuff like this with people. So yeah, we'll have to get you over. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun. I really did enjoy the event and, and, and I did have that realization. It was about mile eight where I still was happy as a clam and, and really not feeling any distress at all. Um, and, and had the realization like, Oh crap, like maybe this is a good distance for me, (laughs) but it gave me a bit of confidence going into Ultraman that physiologically I am, I, I, my, one of my very first coaches in the sport was, uh, Karen Smyers. And, um, Karen often used to say to me when I'd get nervous before an Ironman, she's like, Didi, you get better as the distance gets longer. So even like, you know, six hours into an Ironman, I'm just getting warmed up. Like I'm just finding my, finding my stride. So I think physiologically I am sort of suited best towards longer things. (laughs) Well, take us back then to your first Ironman win, Sherbourne in the UK back in 2006. Um, I, I, I told you a lie before we started. I wasn't there that year. I was there in 2007, but the reason it's so familiar to me is that all that winter that I trained for 2007, I had the British TV show of it on basically on repeat Uh on the old VCR. So I remember watching you for possibly hundreds of hours, um, (laughs) in that race as I trained indoors on the turbo trainer during that winter. Did you actually, do I remember right? Did you lead the whole swim out? You swam in front of all the guys and led all of them out as well. I I did. Yeah, it was crazy. That And I'm in UK that year for me was not on my schedule. It was not a, a planned race. Um, I had raced uh, Ironman Coeur d'Alene back in June of that year in an attempt to get my Kona slot. Right. And um, it was dreadful. It was 115 degrees Fahrenheit in Coeur d'Alene. It was so, so, and that's how it goes in Coeur d'Alene. It either snows at the finish line at midnight or it's like you could fry an egg on the sidewalk. And this was a fry an egg on the sidewalk kind of year. It was so dreadfully hot. And I have very little recollection of what actually happened, but I collapsed on the run course about seven miles in to the run. It was actually, it's an outermost point of the red, it's a looped course. And I was at that far end of the the loop and I wasn't near an aid station. I remember actually Hillary ran by me and said something like, oh my God, are you okay? As I was literally lying on the ground. Um, and I was actually rescued by a fisherman and his son. His son was a, a medical student and thankfully, they saw me hit the deck and came ashore on their boat and gave oh, wow. me help and, and, and actually called the ambulance. And I ended up with, I think, four or five liters of IV fluid and was still so dreadfully dehydrated. It just something was not quite right. I don't know if I was fighting something to begin with, but yeah, it was a disaster. So I was left mid-June without a qualifying slot and looked around it the race possibilities. And I remember Karen pushing very hard that I go to Ironman Switzerland, which was like in two weeks. And I was like, I think I need a little more time to get my confidence back. And so I picked Ironman UK and it ended up being this unbelievable adventure. Uh, the day I was meant to leave, 
was there, there was an attempted terrorist attack on an airplane, and that was the start of the whole no liquids on aircraft. Oh, really? Yeah. So my flight, I was rerouted and delayed a day or two. Um, I went alone. My husband didn't go with me. So it ended up being this huge adventure. And of course, this, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but this is before smartphones. Right. So. I had printed like Yahoo maps of where I was going. I flew into Heathrow, rented a car and drove. Um, it was, <laughs> That's it, a good old I, drive, isn't it? From London to, it, to Yeovil. It was, it's, did yes. you go past um, Stonehenge? Do you end up going I, down that I, road past? And that was the other crazy thing is that here I am driving along, like looking at my map. And of course, I'm sitting on the wrong side of the car. Like, well, on your correct side of the car. But for me, I was a little backwards and I... It, it, all of a sudden, I look up and I was like, gosh, that looks like Stonehenge. <laughs> and I had no idea that, that yeah. I would drive straight by it. But I it's pulled right off the there, road. isn't it? It's right there it by the road. It truly is right on the highway. And so I pulled off. I pulled off and I did the walking tour. Like, it was so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so I found my way. I stayed at a little um, bed and breakfast there in town. I know they have the dorms, but somehow I missed that memo. But I stayed at a bed and breakfast there in town and really didn't know how the race was going to go. I had some bike problems, some mechanical problems. And I remember sitting, they had set up right at the castle there. And I remember sitting there for like five hours the day before the race, like hoping they could fix my bike. And, and yeah, we did. We got in for the swim and it was a mass start. And I remember they had said, oh, once we put you in the water, we'll just have the age groupers back up 15 meters or so. And I was like, that is never going to happen. Yeah. So I was like preparing myself psychologically for this just, you know, washing machine of, of a start. And God bless the Brits. They blew a whistle and they said, age groupers, please back up 15 me meters. And all of them. <laughs> We're very polite right that's over here. I was, I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, they actually did it. I was like, this is amazing. Um, yeah, I think I did. I think the swim is a bit short. I think I swam like 47 something, which for me, like that's, it was, I think yeah. it was a, a, maybe a smidge short. Um, but yeah, I let out, I let out the swim. And I remember uh, the guy who won the men's race, he joked in his, his speech at awards that he had gone into the day, you know, he, he retired after that race, but he had gone into the day with this mindset that like, it's okay. It's, it's, everything's okay. Everything's okay. And he joked that he came up to me at like, I don't know, 40 kilometers into the bike. He's like, and then I finally caught the lead woman. <laughs> and I just said to myself, it's okay. It's okay. Um, but yeah, it ended up being this great adventure. I really loved it. I loved the spectators. I like, I ate dinner in a different pub every night. Like I just loved the culture there. I, I absolutely adored it. <laughs> Brilliant. And you were, you were relatively late to approach for athlon career as well, weren't you? I read, now going back, I read you were, you were a very, very good swimmer. Were you, were you at Stanford? Am I right by yeah, saying that? Yeah. I swam for Stanford. Um, and you were a backstroke swimmer. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And you were, yep. you were a smidge away from making the Olympic team. So that's, that's the standard of swimmer yeah. you are you were you were right there well I think it's also the standard of swimming in the U.S. I think that year um I, I I'm a I'm a two-time Olympic trials loser I competed both in 88 and in 92 in the U.S. trials and 88 I didn't really have a shot uh, but it was a good experience to have that Olympic trials experience and then 92 I, I certainly wasn't a shoe-in it, it wasn't a, a huge disappointment not to, to make it or a shock um but my world ranking was like sixth that year, but I was fifth in the U S so that, oh, that wow. just speaks to, yeah. um, the strength of U S swimming certainly at that time and still, um, and, and particularly the strength of women's backstroke at that time in the U S so just tough break, but yeah, I was, I was close, but I did swim, swam on a few national teams. So I was on the U S national team from 89 to 94 when I retired, uh, swam Pan American Games, Pan Pacific Games, swam the Goodwill Games, which I don't think they actually have the Goodwill Games anymore. But I did have some international swim experience. The only team I, I never made was the Olympic team. Okay. Um, and just to scare all the listeners, how fast were you over 100 meters backstroke? Oh, now you're hurting my brain. I want to say not I, now. The, the, they swim so fast now. The times, I just, I can't believe it. I sound slow, but I think I was two minutes, 12 across 200 meters. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> That's insane. Um, 
Yeah, but now, I mean, now they, they swim so fast. I remember watching um, quite a bit of swimming. It's been on, um, they've had quite a bit of swimming on the Olympic Channel, um, you know, with COVID and all, because there's yeah. no sports happening. So I've been watching a lot of, of swimming on TV. Um, and the, the how fast they swim now is so, it, I, even I'm amazed. So I, I, I look at my little 212 and I feel rather pedestrian compared to today's <laughs> standards. But at the time, it got the job done. So what was the what happened after after you you finished university and before you started a, a pro triathlon career? Then what was what was the interim between those two? Um, so I swam a couple of years post collegiately, which again at the time was sort of unusual. Now it, it's not at all unusual to have athletes swim after college, but at the time there wasn't the support or the infrastructure or the programs um, to really support post-collegiate swimmers. So I was a bit of an oddity, um, in the year or two after I graduated from Stanford showing up at meets on pool decks, coaches would look at me, they're like, what are you doing here? Um, <laughs> it was, it was unusual, but I still, I was swimming, I swam best times my senior year in college and I just didn't feel ready to be done. I thought I could swim faster and I still had such a passion for the sport. Uh, so I continued on, but by 94, I didn't make the world championship team. And I thought, mm, I felt like I was starting to fall behind career wise. My friends had all, you know, had now two years of job experience and I was just still swimming. Um, so I retired, uh, I worked for a year for a consulting company and applied to, to business school, um, and was accepted at the Wharton school at the university of Pennsylvania. So I spent two years getting my MBA and then I went to work on wall street. Uh, I had a job in Manhattan. I worked for Lehman brothers now defunct, not my fault, but, uh, yeah, I worked, uh, I worked as a trader for two years at Lehman Brothers and decided that Manhattan wasn't really for me. Uh, and then, of course, I had met my husband, um, then boyfriend, uh, in New York and about three dates in was like, hey, you want to move to Boston? Wow. <laughs> and so we picked up sticks and moved to Boston, which had a very strong financial community as well. And I worked for a mutual fund company in Boston for, for six years. So, yeah, I had, I think, uh, eight eight year or so hiatus from, from sport. I was still active. I ran quite a bit, mostly to keep up with my eating habits. Um, I was going to say, did you, did you train during that period? Were you still in the pool regularly? And um, I wouldn't call it training. I, I exercised. I did run quite a bit. I started running some marathons um, okay. with no logical training plan. I would just get up and <laughs> run every day before work. And when I was some 10 weeks out from a marathon, I, you know, one weekend I'd run 10 miles the next weekend I'd run 12. Like that was my training plan. Never did any speed work, never did anything like that, but I stayed active. I swam a bit, um, for the New York athletic club in Manhattan. Um, they had a, a master's, it wasn't even a master's team. It was a team. And that was, that was the big rub is that, um, you got, uh, free membership at the New York athletic club, which was very nice to have, but then you had to go swim meets and these were proper meets against proper club teams. And so right. it was sort of embarrassing to be, you know, at that point, nearly 30 years old and not nearly the swimmer I had been going to meets. That was when I was hiding from all the other coaches being like, yeah, I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that was, but I did, I just swam a bit. Um, but it was the summer, after business school where I actually did my first Ironman. Um, the summer before business school, I was dating a boy at the time and he had just finished business school and had the summer off before starting work. So he encouraged me to quit my job uh, earlier than I had anticipated in, in anticipation of me starting graduate school. Um, so I quit uh, in, I think, late April, early May and bought literally I wanted to impress them. So I, yeah, I bought a bike and we flew to Seattle and rode our bikes across the country unsupported, just the two of us. Wow. Now, unfortunately we broke up in Montana. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a long way to ride with someone you've just broken up with. Did you continue together or did you one headed off South and one headed off <laughs> through well, Canada? We rode for safety reasons. Again, this is pre cell phone. Um, and we only had one copy of the maps so, um, we would wake up in the morning and I would set out and he would follow some 10 or 15 minutes behind and we'd pick, pick a spot to meet for lunch. Uh, we'd check in with one another, make sure the other one wasn't, you know, dead. And then we'd continue on and do the same thing for dinner. So we would just sort of ride on the same road, but separately. Um, and we did finish, finish the trip. Yeah. It, it, uh, in retrospect, we reconciled briefly in North Dakota, but the, the relationship ultimately did not survive. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, you got some good bike miles in your legs though, early days. Hey, very, very much so. Like I, I literally did not own a bike when he proposed it. I bought a bike and five days later we were on a plane flying to the, to the West coast. So, um, it was a real introduction to cycling, uh, the importance of good chamois, um, the importance of a good saddle. And interestingly, I made it. I made it all the way across the country and did not get a single flat tire. Wow. Yeah, because it was one of my very first triathlons. It was a local triathlon in Boston. It was a half Ironman. Um, I let out the swim again overall and got a flat about two miles into the bike. And I didn't have a flat kit because I didn't know how to change it. I was like, well, what am I going to carry this? I don't even know what to do with it. Yeah. So, um, And over. I went from... I went from first to last. <laughs> so oh, bless you. after that, I, I learned how to change a flat, but yeah. So, um, but I did my first Ironman, um, the summer after business school, because I had three months off before I had to start my job on wall street. Um, and I had no money cause I had just paid for business school and I didn't really have much of a travel bug after the whole bike trip pre business school. So, um, I had seen the Ironman on TV and just decided I'm going to spend that three months and train as hard as I can and, and do an Ironman. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I did an Ironman, but that was sort of a bucket list. Like I checked the box and moved on and it wasn't until, um, I guess 2001, late 2001, I decided I wanted to try another one and had signed up for Ironman Florida, uh, which was in the, uh, November of 2002. And that's where I sort of took off. I, I won the amateur race at Ironman Florida, um, decided I should probably hire a coach if I was going to try to compete in Hawaii. Because uh, yeah. I wasn't very well prepared, I just had a good aerobic engine, and that's where a Wall Street friend connected me with Karen Smyers. And after a couple of years as an age grouper, Karen encouraged me to race professionally. And you had you had three top tens in Hawaii, didn't you? In the yeah. in the late what was that? Was it oh seven, oh eight, oh nine, somewhere around yep. that time? Yep, seven, eight, nine. Um, I was, I think. I don't know, ninth, seventh and 10th or something like that. Yeah. In those three years. So never top five, but always Belinda Granger, the, the now retired Aussie pro, she said to me one night after awards and a bit of alcohol, she's like, the thing I love about you, Dee, she's like, you're not really good, but you never really give up. You're always just kind of hang in there and end up in the top 10. I was like, thank you. So I can't say I ever went into the Ironman World Championship thinking, you know, I'm going to win this thing. And, and I admire people that have that confidence. Um, I always just wanted to not screw it up and do as well as I could. And, and that landed me three top tens. So, yeah, That's pretty amazing. good. That's really amazing. I, I remember reading something you'd written somewhere about um, about some archery awards you got when you were a kid at summer camp. And it was to do with, was it? the persistence and determination award or something and that's kind of set the set the tone for the rest of your career you did dig back into the archives didn't you yes I went to I went to summer camp it was one of my first sleep away camp experiences and for some reason you know I could have gone to to swimming where I know I would have racked up all the the camp awards uh at swimming but I just fell in love with archery I don't know why And I would stand out on that dang range and fire these arrows and half of them would land at my feet. Like they wouldn't even leave the bow. They would just sort of (laughs) fall. I was terrible at it. Um, And by the end of the summer camp, I hadn't achieved a single award. And I think the camp counselor on the archery range actually felt bad for me. So she cut out this little, these, uh, they somehow connected, which I I don't know how she did it, but the the P and the D were attached to one another. And they, they presented me with the persistence and determination award which at the time I felt like a bit of a loser. I was like, this is so lame. I was like, <laughs> it was orange construction paper. And I remember it said persistence and determination. And it was like a pat on the back. But in retrospect, I think it just sort of speaks a little bit to my, my personality. The best way to get me to do something is to tell me that I can't. So yeah, the persistence and determination award. Camp Nyota, 1982, maybe. <laughs> I wonder what that camp counselor is doing right now and if she's got any any idea of the effect that like we never know do we, as adults the effect we have on on children by by a yeah. small comment or 20 minutes cutting out some construction papers to give you an award and it's there's probably no better gift someone can give to a kid than telling them they're good at being persistent and determined well i didn't even honestly i was like i don't actually even know what that means like is this a good thing <laughs> like it, it just I, I i don't know i remember feeling so awkward about it cuz it wasn't an actually it wasn't actually uh, like an actual award 
But it, you, your point is interesting. The camp actually, believe it or not, does still exist. Um, and I don't know how in the world I would ever find this. They have a Facebook group. Maybe I should just post on the yeah. Facebook group and see if I can find the archery counselor. That'd be funny. Yeah, but it did. It did make a big impact. I saved the award. I think it's probably in my parents' basement somewhere still. Nice. I love it. <laughs> what was your favorite race of all the races that you've done? What was your favorite oh. race? It's so hard to pick one. It really, really is because they – like I loved my UK experience. That was my first win. Um, gosh, um, I love Hawaii because it's the best of the best on their best day. There's no saying, Oh, well, I'm only at this point in my season. Oh, I've only done aerobic work. Like there's no excuses. And so I love the level of competition and the pressure of Hawaii. Um, I really truly did love my Ultraman experience because of my involvement with my crew it really was a team effort and they, you know, they say for every triathlete, either, you know, age group or professional that it, it takes a village, yeah. but at Ultraman, it literally does. And, and the degree of intimacy with your crew, uh, and how involved they are in the process just made it, a re- I could not have done it without them. I yeah. absolutely could not have done it without them. And, and yeah, day in and day out, I couldn't do it without the support of my coach, my husband, my family, my, you know, my physio, my massage therapist, they, they all play a really, really big role. But with Ultraman, it literally, it's, it's so literal because they are there getting you through the race. So I, I think for me, that's going to be one that really stands out. Nice. I like that. And your career has come to the point now where as well as still obviously racing to an incredibly high level and breaking world records, you're also doing some of the commentary for Ironman on their event. So, so how did that come about? Uh, it was race week of Ironman Boulder in 2018, I believe. I think 2017, I had been invited to do commentary for the 70.3 Worlds. Um, they had only had male commentators and I guess my name had come up as somebody who might be interesting to have. And I did it and I was, I was very nervous. Like I remember sitting in the commentary booth, literally raising my hand every time I had something to say (laughs) because I didn't, I didn't know really how it worked. And, um, my biggest fear even still today is that my wall street potty mouth is going to come out online (laughs) (laughs) while we're on air. You're live, you're live. Remember you're live. Um, and yeah, so I have to be careful with that. But then, uh, 2018 Ironman had, had sort of secretly at the time signed an agreement with Facebook to start broadcasting the races live, uh, via the Ironman now channel on Facebook watch. And, um, I was actually racing Ironman Boulder and they're like, Hey, we have an idea we want to talk to you about. Can you, can you come into the office for a little bit and just have a chat? They're like, are you busy? And I was like, Oh, it's Ironman race week. Yeah. I got nothing going on guys. Sure. I'll come on in. And so, uh, I went in and they told me about, you know, what they were going to do on Facebook and what I'd be interested. And I, I just leapt at the opportunity. It's, it's, um, you see a different side of the sport. Um, you learn a lot. Um, I've learned a lot, not only about racing, um, but about the different athletes, you know, I'm such at the, at the end of the day, I'm just a huge fan of the sport. So anywhere I can be involved, I want to be involved. And, uh, we have a great broadcast team, um, both the team at Ironman and BCC, who is the, the local company that does the production. They're just great. And they've become like family. Um, it's a really, really great opportunity, obviously now with pandemic, uh, they've come up with virtual racing, which believe me, talking about people riding stationary trainers is not easy, but we have a good time <laughs> with it. And I think the athletes have really embraced it too. I mean, we've got pets and kids and, uh, cheer stations. People do virtual aid stations. People get really creative in their pain caves, uh, with what they give us to work with. And, uh, you know, I think we'd all obviously rather be out on real race courses. And I'd certainly rather be calling commentary of, of people out on courses around the world than riding in their basements and garages. But, uh, but it's brought the community together and, and I feel lucky to be a part of it. Nice. Uh, so one final question before we finish then tell us about some of the companies and coaches and people who've supported you and sponsored you and stuff over the years. It's a nice chance I think to get a, I get a chance to give a shout out to them. Yeah. I mean, I've been very, very lucky in working with some great coaches. Uh, Karen Smyers really getting me started in my career. 
I, I joked that I rode Karen's coattails better than anybody, uh, both in terms of <laughs> both in terms of just experience, like just riding behind Karen. You know, she was one of the greatest cyclists in the sport. So yeah. whenever she shifted, I shifted. Whenever she stood, I stood. Whenever she sat, I sat. Whenever she got in her bars, I got in my bars. I just emulated everything about her and. And she really helped introduce me to some of my sponsors. Um, she introduced me to Saucony. I was with Saucony for nearly 10 years. Um, and uh, it, it was just, I, I can't thank Karen enough. She literally taught me everything and, and really gave me the opportunity um, as a pro. And she's just a good friend. She's still a really, really good friend. And I just have so much gratitude. Um, I, I went from Karen. I worked with Jesse Kropelnicki briefly. That didn't really work out. The, the, the training system just didn't suit me. Um, and then I got hooked up with Siri Lindley and that was my first squad experience. And of course, Siri's enthusiasm was, was amazing. And, but after a time I just wanted a change. Um, and, and I got connected with Julie and, and Julie's just so even keeled and, and I have so much respect for her as an athlete, but she's so smart as a coach and so thoughtful. And she coaches really some of the big powerhouses in the sport. Um, and the people I get to train with now are just amazing. I mean, Tim O'Donnell, Rennie, um, we have a great, we have a great crew. Um, and, and really even the ones that aren't in Boulder, Matt Hansen, Lauren Brandon, Jordan Bryden. Um, it's just a great, it's a great and really, really supportive crew that, that I'm happy to be a part of. Um, and now kind of coming full circle, um, I've just, partnered with smash fest queen for apparel and that's hillary biscay who got me oh is it really yeah so i just uh in the past couple of weeks have partnered with hillary to to be a part of smash and i've just been such a fan of the brand that they've created not because the stuff is comfortable and functional and cute and you know fun to wear but the community they've built up around the brand is really special and and when it was announced just last week the messages I got from the people who are, you know, part of the team was just heartwarming. Um, it was amazing. Um, you know, being nearly 50 sponsorship for me is tough. You know, the, I think sponsors look forward and they're like, you're nearly 50. What, what's your time left <laughs> in the sport? And I, I try to advocate for the fact that I am truly a unicorn. Like I'm not just a random, like 35 year old pro who has a chance to be <laughs> top 10 in Kona. Like I really am different and groundbreaking, but sponsorship, it's tough everywhere. I tell you. And, yeah. uh, it's particularly tough when you're nearly 50, but, uh, I am thankful for the community I have around me. Um, it's been great. I've, uh, I've been really, really fortunate. Um, I've worked with infinite nutrition since 2007, um, they've been great. Um, and more recently I've been connected with certified Piedmontese, which is a, a beef company. So I get very good steaks. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. One of the guys I coach has a, has a similar company in the UK and he hooked me up with some, some beef the other day. His company is called Farmazon and it's amazing, isn't it? It's like, wow, the taste of it's, the meat that comes from really high quality farms is incredible, isn't it? It, the difference is astounding. And I, the, the interesting thing and the funny thing, and I know we have to go, but this is sort of a funny story. Um, I was a vegetarian for a really long time. Me too. So yeah. the, fact that I have, the fact that I have a beef sponsor, people are <laughs> laughing. They're like, what? But the fact of the matter is a lot back in 2016, when I had a lot of those injuries, a lot of it was nutrition related. And I just sort of had a a really sobering conversation with my doctor who was like, Didi, your body is eating itself to stay alive. Like you've got to shape up your nutrition. It's not that I wasn't eating well. I just wasn't eating enough variety of foods. And I, I finally started to look at nutrition. Like I look at training. I don't love track sessions, but I know I have to do them. I don't love yeah. VO2 max intervals, but I know I have to do them. I don't love, I'm not a foodie. Like I just eat yeah. for convenience, but I have realized that it's, if I want this to be my job and I want to continue on at this level, I've got to pay more attention. And so, but then I got Piedmontese beef and I was like, you've got to be kidding me like this. I actually really look forward to eating it. So it's crazy. Yeah. Anyway. No, it's funny. We'd followed a similar path. I was, I was almost vegan for two years and, and I ended up getting really quite ill. I just, I just wasn't, and I'm sure it's possible to eat a vegan diet and be completely healthy and, and be a really highly productive athlete, but it wasn't for me. I just, I'm just not good enough at cooking and just couldn't make it work. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a big I, eye opener, I, isn't it? It really is. And I, I know there are vegan athletes out there. Hillary Biscay is a vegan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, she's a big friend of Rich, it, isn't she? I don't know, but 
you really, it requires a great deal of planning um, and a great deal of knowledge about nutrition to make sure that you're yeah. filling all of those gaps properly. And I just, I wasn't very, I, I did it for a taste thing. I was like, I just don't, it wasn't even a moral thing. Like I'm an animal lover, but I'm like, eh, you, just, you know, I don't feel that fondly about chickens or necessarily like right. I, it just doesn't, it wasn't a thing for me. I, it was more of a taste and a texture thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I came around just from the performance standpoint that I think it's really important. Yeah. 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 Cool. Hey, well, listen, that, that seems like a really good place to leave it. It's been fantastic to get the opportunity to talk to you. I've loved hearing your stories. If people want to hear more about you and find out more about you, where can they go? Where are you on the internet and social? Yeah, I'm uh, Dee Dee Griesbauer on Facebook. I'm at Dee Dee Griesbauer on Instagram. And my website is www.dd-griesbauer.com. Awesome stuff. That's brilliant. Well, we look forward to hearing more of your dulcet tones on the the Ironman coverage over the coming years. How many more um, sort of gigs of commentary have you got coming up in the near future? Uh, I know we're scheduled with VR through VR 21 and this weekend upcoming is VR 16. So we've got, we've got a few weeks left. I know we're planned through the end of August with virtual racing. Uh, and from there, I think it depends. Uh, there are some races I think in Europe that, that are still a go for, for yeah. September and October. So hopefully we get back out onto some real race courses soon in, in certain pockets of the, of the world. And we'll be able to hear you uh, hear you talking about people racing in real life. It seems like a long time ago it happened, doesn't it? Now, so fingers crossed, we get we get to do it this year if it's yeah. Safe. Hopefully so. Hopefully so. All right, Dee Listen, thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Awesome stuff. Uh, loved getting the chance to talk with Dee Dee. I especially loved her little story about that award she got given at summer camp. I think. Um, like we said, we don't often realize the impression we have on kids when we give them something like that. But telling a kid that they're really good at sticking stuff out and enduring can be a real gift that carries on with them through life. And a lot of you who are, you know, long-time triathletes, you'll remember Dee Dee from the fantastic win that she had when she won Ironman UK in 2006. I think it's great to get the chance to go back and interview athletes who are, you know, effectively part of our triathlon heritage in this country. Um, 2006, I think we were only... Was that the first year Ironman UK or the second year maybe Ironman UK was held as a full distance race in this country? So, yeah, great to get the chance to uh, to chat with her. All right, great stuff. So before we wrap it up this week, I just want to uh, give us a chance to have some offers for you from our sponsors. Use the code OxygenAddict15 at precisionhydration.com for 15% off your first electrolyte order. Use the code OxygenAddict10 at Thriver.co for 10% off all home blood test subscriptions. And you can click the link in the show notes to book a call with me or one of the team if you're interested in finding out if you're a good fit for Team Oxygen Addict Coaching. Remember, everyone, there's links in the show notes for all these sponsors so you don't have to remember them. Until next week, have a great, safe training and racing week. I'm Coach Rob Wilby, and you've been listening to the Oxygenetic Triathlon Podcast. See ya. Hold up. 